Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We spoke earlier today to Brian Dalton, who's CEO of Altius Minerals Corp. They are a TSX-listed royalty company, but in outside of the precious metal space, they're looking at base metals, uh, renewable energy generation, uh, amongst other things. If you want our thoughts and opinion on the conversation and indeed the company itself, you can find that on cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Uh, we can also find detailed company reports and also commentary from market experts from around the world on a variety of commodities and companies. There's also training videos on there, plus uh, summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you a little bit of time. And of course, there's our thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other. So do go there now and sign up at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Brian, how are you doing, sir? Very well, and you? Not bad, not bad. Where in the world are you? I'm in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. That sounds very, very remote. Is it? It's very remote, but uh, you know, sometimes it's uh, it's a good thing to be a little bit off the beaten path. Sometimes you get a different perspective. Right. Yeah. You must be in Newfoundland. You've got to be like a keen fisherman at the very least, haven't you? I really like to fish and hunt. I've got small kids, you know. I've got a big family. I've got to keep fed here. So. <laughs> you've gone, you've, you've gone feral. You're, you're living off the land. That, that's what I like to hear, Brian. Fantastic. Um, in my home. Yeah, it's it's a different it's a different life. I'll be going to Waitrose after this to uh, buy some sausage rolls and a bottle of wine. I think it's different well, that life. Sounds pretty good. <laughs> Right. Okay. Brian, we've never met before or heard the story. So I'm looking forward to this one because um, another royalty company we've interviewed a few recently. Uh, could you kick off first, though, and give us a one minute overview of the business, then I'll pick it up from there. Sure. Altius is a royalty company, first and foremost. Uh, what differentiates it from most of the royalty companies in Canada is that we're not focused on precious metals. Uh, we have been focused more in terms of base metals, bulk commodities, and more recently also, um, you know, a new natural resource for us, and that's uh, electricity generated from renewable renewable power sources. That's awesome. Um, very counter-cyclical business, long-term strategy and focus, um, just a place that's a lot of fun to work. Yeah, okay. Now... Thank you for that. Um, so you, this is also a first for this show. You started this company straight out of college. It's a long time ago, right? Yeah, yeah. It was back in uh, back in 1997 when a couple of classmates and I decided that uh, rather than you know go out and put our job applications in for one of the big mining companies who were studying geology at the time, that uh, we'd take a uh, a chance and start up our own junior exploration company. So I was basically writing my undergraduate honors thesis uh, by night and listing Altius by day back wow. in my very early twenties. And here you are today, the same company. Very good. And today it's a lot of fun. Serious question. So what what were you what did you set out to try and do? What was this company you set out uh, trying to do? How are you going to earn money? Well, the original business plan was a fairly traditional junior mineral exploration business model, uh, but with one particular twist. See, prior to the listing, myself and my partners had been putting ourselves through university as prospectors. So we were generating pros mineral prospects and ideas and farming in the mouth of junior and major companies. And really when we started Altius, the plan was to you know, basically keep that rolling, but in a more formalized structure to a public company. So we're, I think, fairly well considered within the sector as one of the real originators of what's now known as the project generator business model, which is to say that we generate projects and then we farm them out to junior and major mining companies, keeping back a minority interest in all of the ideas that we generate and always a royalty. And what that allowed us to do was to, uh, one, to be exposed and provide our shareholders with exposure to many more opportunities for discovery than if we were to try to sold fund all of these ideas ourselves. And probably more importantly, from a long-term perspective, it allowed us to um, really preserve our, our own capital structure. So we chose to take dilution at the project level rather than up at the corporate level. 
And the result of that, I think, is fairly clear today in that we still only have uh, just over 40 million shares outstanding after more than 20 years of operations. With no rollbacks? No rollbacks. There you go. That's the clever bit. Okay. Um, and so how did that evolve and change over time? Because obviously you're not a prospect model, uh, generator model now. Um, you're a 450 million market cap royalty company. So how did that migrate over time? Well, we are actually still a project generation business at our, at our core. Um, but what happened was, so this was 97, it was right after BX uh, happened. It was a really rough time in the market. Uh, but it was good on the other hand, because there was a lot of availability of projects and not a lot of competition. There wasn't a lot of capital floating around out there to compete with. Um, but over time, obviously the market turned and we got into you know, 2000, 2001, and then all the way through the 2000s with what's now known as the super cycle. And through that period, we were very successful in being able to turn a lot of new projects uh, over, farm them out to different juniors and majors, again, always keeping a royalty. But what really started the shift was the value of the equity holdings that we were gaining through the project sales. You know, some of it was on individual project successes and some of it was just a general rising tide phenomenon. But we suddenly found ourselves you know, from a starting point of a less than million dollar market cap to sitting on over $200 million in profits from the sales of these equity positions, in addition to the big portfolio royalty. And so that kind of opened a question of what do you do with that much capital as a junior mining company? Now, there were lots of ideas thrown at us. Um, many people had ideas for what we should do with the money. Um, one thing that was not going to happen, and we were clear on this, though, is that we were not going to try to evolve into becoming a mining company. You know, it's sort of a natural thing for a lot of junior companies. Their, their business plan is, I'll, I'll find a project, I'll raise money, I'll drill, I'll explore, I'll make a discovery, and then I'll become a mining company. Well, we actually think that there's almost no lending and skills uh, from being a good exploration business to running a major industrial operation. And it really doesn't seem like very much fun to us either. Um, but again, we had to figure out how do you, how do you deal with that much uh, capital? Because obviously individual exploration successes weren't going to move the needle as much anymore because it was, we're sitting behind that much cash. One idea was to, to simply dividend out the money and to reset things a little bit and um, you know, bring ourselves back to a smaller scale where, where that exploration impact could be better felt. But we had a lot of pushback from shareholders and shareholders that obviously had a very positive experience with us up to that point. And they challenged us to find a way to, um, to use that capital and, and to, to, to continue to grow the business. And what we landed on fairly quickly was the idea that uh, we could use that money to buy more advanced stage and particularly cash flowing royalties. Again, we've been building up a portfolio of relatively early stage royalties through our exploration efforts, but there was no uh, meaningful cash flow at that point in the business. So we said, let's take the money and we'll fill out the entire pipeline. So, so when is this? When, when, what year are we talking? I would have been, that would have been bouncing around and we would have been socializing with shareholders as early as 2008, but you know, 2009, 2010, that, that period. The other thing that we landed upon quickly was that uh, yes, we would focus on the royalty space, but we, we, we made a very conscious decision early that we wouldn't pursue uh, a precious metals focus. And that was uh, because we felt there was sufficient competition in that space. And on the other hand, almost none when it came to the base metals and bulk commodities world. Right. Okay. So it's kind of frothy market there, but a bit expensive, wasn't it? 2008, 2009? Well, <laughs> This was the problem. So we had this rah rah. Let's go. This is what we'll do. Here's our business plan, and we went to work and we identified all of the key mineral assets that we knew of in the world that had royalties attached to them, and made a big wish list. And we went after a lot of things, but quite frankly, the expectations of the holders uh, in terms of purchase price were, were we just couldn't get our heads around it. I mean, you had to insert very high metal prices into. Uh, the models to come up with valuations because metal prices were, were, were very hot and very high. I mean, iron ore would have been $200, copper well over $4. And it just, um, it was hard for us to see how that was going to lead to long-term success if we made those kinds of assumptions. And so that 
resulted in what I think in, when we look back um, was the hardest part of the history of our management of this business. It me meant that we had to sit on that capital, not make acquisitions for a number of years, not weeks and months, but years, waiting for conditions to come our way. I mean, we'd obviously seen enough at this point to know just how cyclical the business was. Um, and we just needed those other conditions. And, you know, as always, the mining industry is very reliable in this regard. Uh, there was a period of exuberance and overfunding, overbuilding, and it led to uh, a collapse in, in most commodity prices. That came exactly at the same time that most of the big mining companies or medium, you know, new mining companies uh, were commissioning their projects and were coming up against debt repayment terms exactly at the same time that prices had collapsed and margins had gone to zero. And it caused essentially a, a collective mining industry balance sheet implosion. And uh, suddenly we were popular again. Uh, all those no, these are never for sale or your way out of lunch at that price. Uh, turned into inbound calls. Hey, are you guys still interested in buying that royalty? And uh, yeah, it led to a really busy short period where we acquired 15 royalties over the course of three years. Yes, yeah, so, so it, it was funny, funny times. I was in banking back then and um, we, we saw that same progression in terms of the different types of money and the cost of that money, quite frankly, uh, around that time sort of changing. And uh, as you say, it's not quite people dashing off to lenders of last resort, but they were trying to find funky ways. In, it used to be called innovative financing was the phrase <laughs> being used a lot back then, or alternative financing. There well, you go. What you liked about that period is that the, we were the only alternative in most cases when we were providing capital. So that's obviously you can't get much of a better backdrop than that. Yeah, It was a great time for all the royalty businesses, actually, when most of us really had our pushes in terms of building portfolios. For sure. Okay, so let's, let's get back into the company. So that, I think that was really useful for people who don't know your story. Maybe you know a lot of our audience heard, hearing this for the first time. Just going to get a measure of you know how you think and how how you operate. So let's let's get into my my favorite area, which is business plans. Okay, and maybe we'll pick it up from sort of 2015, 16, where you're kind of picking up these these uh, what you said 15 odd royalties um, in the marketplace. So what was the plan then? What did, what were you trying to be at that point? Having sort of, you know, gently migrated into something else. You know, by that point, when you, again, you compare it to the precious metal space, you had an alternative for investors. You could buy your barracks from new months of the world, or you could buy your Franco Nevada. Uh, but when we looked across the, you know, into the diversified space, Obviously, there was your BHPs and Rios, but there was no real royalty level alternative. And so that's what we set out to create. So we were looking for a portfolio of, of ultra long life, you know, very strong assets, but we wanted to find uh, you know, a good balance of diversity across really key widely traded commodities. So copper was a focus, iron ore was a focus, uh, potash. And you know, one by one, we managed to build up all of those those elements, and to uh, come away with what I think is uh, the closest thing that exists to a you know a fully full emulation of one of those major base metal or diversified producers today. Right. But what's the what's the what's the hurdle you're coming up against? People understand precious metals, right? Easy to understand. You're talking about a bunch of commodities which are um, not as well. I mean, potash for one, people don't really get it. I think it's one. I think it's one for for the next two, three years. I think BHP have said, you know, nickel, copper, potash, and people are like, what? So you've got a big position there. So has that been a tough one to sell? You've been ahead of most of the majors. I, I feel like in terms of directionally, which commodities we really want to be exposed to. Um, I, I get it, like, but the other part of it is that we're pretty fundamental in, in our investment approach. We're very technical about what we invest in. And what dissuaded us from getting involved with the, with the gold royalty business is that, yes, we, we accept that there's a, a stronger valuation dynamic that exists out there. So there's a lower, typically a lower equity cost of capital. But we just couldn't get our heads around, you know, one and two and three percent type IRRs that were the other side of that equation. 
whereas in the base metals and bulk space, particularly when we're at the right part of the commodity cycle, we felt like we were making acquisitions that using you know near bottom of cycle prices were still setting us up for you know high single digit to even low double digit returns. And then in the fullness of the cycle, you know, much stronger than that. So it's, it's just a more fundamental approach. Um, maybe it served us well, maybe it hasn't. But I would put up our actual return on investment in royalty buying uh, against anybody's. Right. Okay. But again, I come back to the thing. People are obviously missing something. So if I look at your share price, it's been... Flat. Let's go. Let's go with flat. <laughs> let's go with flat, yeah. right? Um, quite a few bumps in there. Don't get me wrong. There's enough volatility there to make some money on the ups, ups up, on the ups uh, when it's going up, but it's also coming back down. So it's been fairly flat for three years. So do you think you're ahead of the curve? If you're, you're talking about being ahead of the majors, who are usually thinking, you know, you know, decades ahead, if you're ahead of them, you're a bit early for the market, aren't you? I think we were cyclically appropriate, and that the market will come our way, quite frankly. I believe that, you know, our exposures right now to commodities like copper and potash um, and even in the renewable space, uh, in many ways, it's coming into its own. These cycles take a long time to, to, to play themselves out. You had a peak cycle in 2010, 2011, and that was, you know, a wonderful time to be involved with base metals and bulk commodities. And if we'd had our portfolio then, I'm sure we would have been quite a darling. Well, you know what? It took uh, another five or six years for uh, the cycle to work its way to the bottom again. And now we've you know, had a very long period of no investment in the key commodity areas that we're focused on. Uh, to the point now that you've got some real supply issues. You really do. There's such a, a long period of no investment sets up an inevitability just as a long period of overinvestment does. So I'm pretty comfortable with where we're sitting right now. I really like where we're positioned, quite frankly. But the market's, miss well, the market's missing that, Brian. The market's missing that. They're not, they're not buying your version of events. Like I, like, I agree with you. I think there's, because I, I want to get into some of this with you in a second here. You're, you're looking to the future and saying, well, what's the world going to look like? And we need to get in there. I get that. But What's the disconnect with the marketplace? Is it you haven't been talking to them enough or are they getting distracted by the shiny gold stuff that's going on behind us? What is it? Over the course of the 20 years I've run Alpheus, I've been pretty amazed at how investment timeframes have shrunk. Like the, the, the distance that people are willing to look out is really, really, really compressed. Uh, and that's fine. Look. We could try to be more accommodative to that and to be flavor of the day every week, but it's not a recipe for long-term growth of a great business. Like look at the real lead times that, that occur like between a discovery and an actual development and cash flow and a profitable business. You know, these are realities that you can't overcome. The best you can do is match your own investment and business horizons with these realities. And so what's going to happen in that inevitably is that a short-term focused investment world is going to, you know, yawn for long periods of time until it doesn't. And I believe we're approaching one of those points now, but in any event, uh, I know our business is very strong and positioned to benefit for, from some real fundamental um, drivers, not only in terms of pricing for the commodities that we get collect royalties on, but, you know, this new period of capital availability that will characterize the assets that we're associated with will also result in a flood of new investment that will drive up capacity rates across our portfolio. So we see both price and volume appreciation built into our structure. We don't have to buy anything at this point. All our bets are in and this optionality around pricing and volume is, is embedded fully across the portfolio. Yes, we've had some challenges in the portfolio that had to be addressed, but we've done that. Such as? Through all. Such as? Uh, when we, well, one of the big things that we sought to have in our portfolio early on was this portfolio of royalties on Canadian potash mines. And, you know, these are ultra long life. I don't know if there's any more important mineral deposits on earth, quite frankly, than these. The challenge we had is that the only way we could purchase them was through a package deal that was on offer that included 
some Alberta-based thermal coal royalties. So, you know, to get what we really wanted here, we also had to take something that we wouldn't have otherwise had really any interest in. And the result was a bit predictable. The potash side has worked out fantastically. And like the runway we've got there is, is remarkable. Uh, the potash side, we've been hit with successive uh, regulatory changes that have accelerated the timelines to closure for the assets. And so, you know, for the last two years, we've been heavily investing in replacements for those coal assets. So we've been trying to get out ahead of that. And the way we've gone about that is we've built a new business uh, to royalty finance renewable energy uh, development projects. So a big milestone just in the past um, few months when the, our own estimate of the net present value of our renewable energy royalties has now eclipsed that of our coal royalties. Uh, so coal is going this way and it's, it's, it's absolutely happening. It's actually defined by regulation in our case and our renewable energy platform is going the other way. So a huge challenge, huge problem, huge negative screen for a lot of investment, quite frankly, uh, but you know, very much uh, becoming a rear view mirror issue for us now. So that, that's the bit I want to talk about is the electricity generation, but I'm interested in this because you know, solar, wind, nuclear, you know, all you know, replacing coal, you know, going for this zero carbon economies uh, all around the world at various times. Um, how do you view the nuclear scene at the moment? It's tough. Like I, I get it. I mean, one of the biggest uh, and most successful investments we ever undertook was a uh, uranium project in Labrador, Canada that resulted in a big discovery. And we made a lot of that money that I talked about earlier from that, from that development. And, you know, then you would have heard me sing the praises of, you know, the, the lack of emissions that come from nuclear power generation. And there's a lot of truth. It's all there. What concerns me, though, is um, when I think about where capital is migrating, it's just not there. It's not where it's going. In fact, if you look at a lot of the money flows that are in the world today, and obviously they're very decidedly heading towards you know, ESG mandated type investment funds. To be honest, I mean, nuclear is a negative screen, you know, that's up there with coal, maybe even tobacco. Like, I don't know if that's correct. And that's, you know, scientifically, I get the benefits of nuclear, but that's a different thing than saying, I believe that that's a trend that's really going to accelerate from here until you see capital getting behind that. Um, you know, these macro trends that are underway, they're, they're more than just, they're not just ideological and social, you know, wishes or imperatives. Uh, the reason they're accelerating the way they're accelerating, coal or renewables, uh, electric vehicles, whatever, is that capital has gotten behind them, right? They're not, this is not uh, social driven. It's, it's capitalism at its heart. Um, renewables have become the most economic form of power generation on the grid. Electric vehicles, you know, once you bring that cost parity in line with, with, uh, with other vehicles, never mind the benefits that, that you gain from the lack of emissions, they're just going to be bloody cheaper to own, right? It's, it's just a more economic decision. When, when, when things get going. Um, so until I see, you know, big capital flows getting behind the nuclear business from an economics perspective, as well as the environmental benefits, you know, I don't feel like that is caught in the trend at this point. Interesting. Okay. I wish Thank I could say it differently because, you know, again, we actually have a lot of expertise in, in uranium. Um, but for now, I think it's, it's sort of, uh, it's in the penalty box still. It, it, it's just not where capital wants to be at the moment. What's that say about the Athabasca base and the Uranium Juniors' hopes of getting financed? They'll get there. The reality of those mines, and it's actually another reason that we're not very heavily focused on uranium exploration these days. Like Again, there's a base of, of nuclear power generation that's going to continue, there will be new power plants. So there's always going to be a need for that. And we may even get to that point where, you know, there's a big acceleration again. I don't like our chances today of going out and trying to find a deposit, however, that can compete with the discoveries that were made in the last cycle. Uranium is maybe the one area when I look across the whole commodity spectrum 
you know, obviously we had an incredible run for 10 or 12 years. It was practically unlimited capital for explorers, almost irrespective of your abilities in the area. It just didn't matter. As long as you could say a particular word, you were going to get money. So crazy amounts of money were thrown into the earth looking for new sources of all sorts of commodities. And for the most part, it was a complete and utter failure. Um, there's been no incremental discovery of deposits that are going to, you know, ultimately replace past production and lower, um, you know, the incentive prices that are needed to develop them. With maybe the most profound exception being uranium. Like there, the discoveries that got made in Saskatchewan in that last cycle, um, they're better deposits than most of what's in current development. So you don't necessarily need massive demand growth or uh, looming depletions across other assets. They're so good that they just knock other things out of the market. So don't be worried about those ones. Be worried about the incumbent, not the non-incumbent. Okay, thanks for that. So your focus, I want to kind of get an idea of the, the, the balance of your portfolio because I want to talk about the Apollo JV in a second. Um, so you've, you've got electricity generation and your your focus there is what? Is it is it coal? wind uh, and solar what else is there right so the legacy part is the thermal coal mines which are which are actually linked directly to power plants and it's the power plants that pay us our royalties well the writing is on the wall for those we've been proactively we made a decision a few years ago that what we would do is we would take whatever royalty revenue we were expecting to receive from the phase out stage of these coal mines and we would use the proceeds to create a whole new business as a replacement so something that was becoming very short term and even shorter term than we expected at the time of acquisition had to be replaced with a, a long life um, option value pregnant portfolio. And it wasn't that hard of a leap. I mean, it was obvious that one of the big things that was was knocking coal out of the game from a power generation perspective, um, you know, beyond, again, these societal level um, imperatives was pure economics. Renewables were just becoming so economic. I mean, if you were looking to put new power generation on a grid and you weren't choosing to invest in the renewable space, you weren't making an economic decision. But, you know, again, that, that was a massive game shift there. So again, we've been doing that. We've invested in two big portfolios of development stage wind and solar projects for the most part in the US. Uh, we've attached ourselves to two of the top five developers uh, in that market. And through that, we've gained exposure, royalty level exposure to a portfolio of over 20 gigs of, of potential power generation. Um, these are groups that have been bringing projects to the point that they're ready for, for construction, where they typically would sell and move on and continue origination, origination, origination. I mean, really specialized work, but critical work. And so we found ways to, in a really partner-like fashion as well, fund these groups and to uh, accretively let them build up their businesses and for us to grow this portfolio of royalties. Right, so, so in renewables, like mining, development means it's pre-revenue, just about to go into a build phase, and it's a question of how much they they build out and that will determine the royalty that you return because it needs to be sold into the grid. Is that that's the way it works? The way it works is that, so we back, so I'll give an example of Thanks. real life. Well, the first deal we did was with a group called Tri-Global Energy, Texas-based group, big portfolio projects. Our money went in and they were allowed, if you will, or, you know, they were, uh, we went in with very partner-like money that saw them invest across their portfolio as they see fit with an ultimate objective of selling these projects on to final owners and sponsors. And so the way the deal works is that we put in 30 million in exchange, we are due $30 million worth of royalties. That could be a different number of royalties depending on the different sizes of the projects that get sold in whatever order they're sold. But the easiest way to think about it, it's just in terms of the total investment amount. We put in that money, it has a 10% return, base return hurdle attached to it. So ultimately we will receive $30 million of royalties that will generate a 10% return. So in simplest terms, 30 million invested, 
should generate a long-term cash flow stream of about $3 million per year. It actually will be better than that because the incremental period of time between when we made our investment and when the actual cash flow kicks in is a period of time where our investment is still accruing. So if it takes three years, for example, instead of getting $30 million worth of royalties back, we'll get $40 million worth of royalties back. So our, our investment is already you know, accruing essentially. Got it. Yeah, Understood. Simple, keep it simple. Think about the front end total investment amount. And the will cost. ultimately translate into some number of royalties. Yeah. It'll be diversified across projects and technologies and, and final owners and sponsors. But for anyone who's trying to figure out, well, you know, what's the return profile or how does it work? We put up X amount of dollars here and we've got a very long term base case, 10% or so. Um, uh, return, annual return profile before a whole bunch of potential forms of upside and option value kick in. Right. Okay. And you, you got some line of sight as to how long that effective that royalty stream, that annuity stream of cash keeps flowing because you're you're taking a gross number, is it? Right. So each time a project reaches commercial operations, uh, at that point evaluation is done on the underlying royalty, which was pre-baked and pre-embedded in there. Got it. Okay. And okay. At that point, evaluation is done using very known parameters. You know what the power output is going to be because it's already in operation. Uh, in 99% of the cases, you even know the full pricing you're going to deal with because they're typically built with the use of power purchase agreements structured in advance. You know how long the expected life is because the equipment has a rated life and we pre-embedded the, uh, the discounting rate for valuation purposes. Right. It's quite a big, that 10% is quite big. Yeah, absolutely. So, but you, um, I guess what I'm trying to get to is like you get the first tranche of cash out. You get your 10% no matter what. If they've got expensive maintenance because something's happened, I don't know, tornadoes blowing oh. through, that's their problem, not yours. You get keep right. accruing. We are top line royalty level exposure. And this is where some of the other forms of upside come in. Like we might model this at that time of valuation as having a 20 or 25 year life based on equipment ratings. Well, I think it's quite likely that most of those projects will receive incremental investment over their lives and it will just keep going and going. You know, obviously we're, the sites that are getting built now are on the best available resources. Yes. Yeah. Wind, solar regime, whatever is available in 20 years from now is going to be inferior. So it's, there's always going to be an incentive to, you know, if equipment starts to run down, well, you just replace it with whatever the next generation is. That investment to continue those lives and just keep things running and running, and probably to improve them because the technology then will be better than now, um, is entirely born at the operator level. We have no share of that, that capital cost or operating cost along the way, but we're full beneficiaries of any of the upsides and benefits, so which is very mining royalty-like. And just that's the thinking that we brought to the renewables business. Um, I mean, you got to remember, there was no such thing as renewable energy royalty financing three years ago. It took mining guys and other natural resource sector royalty thinking to modify to that particular natural resource space and to, um, you know, to win adoption. And it's starting to happen. Okay, so that's really interesting. So you're saying, right, example, 30 million you you accrue during the design build phase until they start generating cash. So that thirty could become whatever. Use your example, forty million. Say ease of ease of mathematics, and then that's the number you use. Well, ongoing for the life of that location of that wind turbine. Say whether and, and it's down to the operator to maintain, upgrade, or otherwise it's got nothing to do with you. Fine, and, they, and they'll be able to pay for that because they're generating cash and it'll be a different different, different sort of um, cost structure for them at that point, So, but you've got them going. Okay, understand, I was just trying to work out how, how do I model this thing? How long you model it is an open question. What I can tell you though is that when we buy a royalty on a mine, this is a key focus area for us. We're always looking for those long lifers, um, whether it's because it's already been identified or because Technically, in our group, we have a view on what will ultimately be found, but we want to see that long life because it's the best predictor of you know, obviously mine life extensions, but also expansions. So, you know, we're looking for that as a guide to that kind of optionality and outsized return. But in the end, 
at the end of it all, the resource is going to deplete. And that's what's kind of exciting about renewables. Hmm. Because, you know, unless the sun flames out, these resources are perpetual. Okay. That's uh, that, that, that perpetual is a long, long time. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> Uh, you've been perpetually at the helm of this company, it seems. So, um, <laughs> so that's three firsts. So far, we've got three firsts, and we haven't even finished. So, you know, first person I've met who's still working at the company, set up uh, straight after college. Your project generator model, right? We'll go with that. And then this, in terms of the the thinking that you brought into the renewable space, you brought the kind of royalty model to them. I, okay, I like that. I think that's easier to understand. So if I'm modeling this thing out and I just get a sense of what those line items are, um, as you say, pick a, pick a number, 25 years, 40 years, whatever. Um, okay, um, can we just talk about the base metal component? Because we've talked about, we've talked about a little bit about the thermal coal, the electricity generation from renewables, but base metals is a big piece of what you've got too. And I guess with the EV thematic, people are going, okay, well, that makes, makes a lot of sense. So. What's the size of that? And again, how, how do we model out what that value is? Well, in terms of current revenue, base metals actually make up the biggest part of our portfolio. Um, the core assets that we have uh, royalty exposure to are the Chapada copper mine, which is uh, Lundin's operation in Brazil. Uh, we own royalty interest in uh, Hud Bay Mining's 777 operation in uh, Manitoba. Our original royalty, our first cash flowing royalty, was uh, is related to the Boise's Bay nickel, copper, cobalt mine in Labrador, uh, and then on the more on the development side of things, we have a royalty on um, uh, Excelsior Mining's uh, Gunnison project. It's in Arizona, and they announced uh, two days ago that they're they're starting first uh, copper extraction, and then beyond that, you know, uh, Curry Pampa, which is the uh, Salazar Adventist project in Ecuador. We own the royalty there. So, you know, we've got a nice pipeline of, of really strong producing assets, um, embedded optionality in those, particularly at Chapada, where Londine is undergoing uh, or is undertaking some pretty significant potential expansion studies right now. Resources there have been growing much faster than production rates. So, there's yeah. another example of uh, you know, one of those free. Uh, upsides potentially coming at us in the near term. An operator who makes the decision to expand their production rates, uh, making us obviously a beneficiary at the royalty level, but having no share of the capital costs. Right. And okay. then that just the deeper pipeline of development stage assets. And when do those developments happen? They don't happen at the bottom of cycles. They happen when things get better. Right? So you want to position and own those development stage royalties uh, when things are tough. And I guess it's a way of saying that we don't feel a tremendous need at this point to be overly active on the M&A front because we were so busy back when it was more opportune. Now we let things happen. Better market conditions, better prices, better industry margins, more broad capital availability, because that is when the, uh, these long life assets we've selected for suddenly get invested in and you know, X amount of production at 20 years becomes, um, you know, 2X that, uh, or in the case of potash, X amount of production for a thousand years becomes 2X that for 500 years. And then before you know it, it's 4X that for 250 years. So these are the things you want to see happen. That's the part of the cycle. In. And I should also say that we'd never abandoned the project generation business in 2014, 2015, and 2016 when there was no money available for the junior mining sector, when the majors had no margin, so the first thing to go was your expiration budget. Well, we went pretty much mad, took our brains out and bought up every piece of available land that came open in all the core belts of the world that we were really attracted to. And since then, we've been able to complete agreements for 60 projects since 2016 that have resulted in new equity positions and new early stage royalties. Um, I mean, we're far, so much better positioned going into this upcycle than we were in 2001. Uh, that, you know, it's, it's exciting. So here, again, cyclical focus. You buy these assets that have all sorts of optionality embedded in them at the bottom of the cycle. 
you let the cycle do its thing, they will grow because conditions are right for them to grow. And at the same time, the project generation business, when does that get most of its benefit? It's when capital comes back and everybody gets excited about exploration again. So again, you talked earlier about, you know, it's been a flattish kind of ride for a little while. Well, flat's not bad when everything else is going like this. Now the last six or eight months, obviously the gold sector has, has come on, but I feel so excited about how we are positioned for exactly where I think we're to in the cycle right now. This is where exactly where we want it to be. Yeah. Okay, let me come back to that, okay? Because I do want to make a point about that one. But can I just ask a question? Because I think the last is going to park this section of the conversation. Is have you made any uh, portfolio sales? I don't mean project generator type stuff. Have you sold off any of the rest of the portfolio? No, Royalties? the only thing that we've done in the way of sales. So our royalty exposure in iron ore is somewhat indirect. We own shares in a company called Labrador Iron Ore Royalty Corporation, which in turn owns a big royalty on an asset in uh, a Rio Tinto asset in Labrador. And it basically serves as a pass-through vehicle for that royalty income. Mm -hmm. And earlier this year, at the peak of COVID concern, we made a decision to sell down some of our position there. But it, it wasn't so much an economics or you know an asset level decision. It was more of a prudence and balance sheet type decision. Okay. Um, no, we're typically not looking to be sellers. The one exception to that would be through our project generation business, we actually happen to have a lot of gold royalty exposure, not because we've been buying gold royalties, but because we've been finding gold projects as we do our general work. So, you know, we would be in the future, I think sellers of our gold royalty interest as they mature simply because they're going to be much better valued in, in, a, in a pure play gold royalty business. But, you know, we're looking to make calls that turn us into very long-term holders of our assets. Okay. Okay. So I'm just intrigued by that, the balance sheet maintenance or prudence, as you call it, because you do do share buybacks. You also dish out mm -hmm. dividends and you're quite proud of the share count, obviously. Right. Yep. So you, you, you're, how, how would you describe your management style? We're owners. Okay. Okay. It's in my major, my, my personal, my family's life is basically, our assets consist of this house that I'm in here right now and my holdings in Altia. So managing that portfolio of assets is really all that I had to do to manage my, uh, you know, my personal affairs as well. So we don't want to, make crazy gambles and we didn't know in March, but we would have every single mine in our portfolio shut down. Uh, we do carry some debt. We like to use some leverage in our acquisitions and we just didn't want to have a situation where we've done all this work to build up a portfolio of multi-generation, sometimes hundreds and thousands of your assets and to have an event um, topple things. So it was just one of those more conservative type decisions that, um, you know, we ne you, ne you never regret. It, it ensured that at least from a balance sheet and capital structure perspective that we could remain fortress-like, if you will, through a potential very serious crisis. It never got that bad, quite frankly, for, for us. We never saw that much production uh, loss. We had some hits on prices, but, you know, things never got even close to... Um, you know, a situation where our banks were even interested in us, which is where you always want to be. In fact, we talked to the banks when interest rates fell and thought it might be opportune to, you know, go in and say, hey, you know, these rates are down. Maybe we should have a little talk about our leverage. And, you know, they were pretty much, sorry, we don't have time to talk to you guys. You're the last people we think about these days, right? Okay, so let, let's. We've got a couple of things to talk about. Okay, and I'm just kind of, kind of conscious of time here. Um, your, your Q3 came out. It's been a tough year, 2020. I think all, all, all around. Maybe the precious metal guys would disagree, but it's been a tough year. You, you came out with. I think what did you announce? 16.2 million bucks for the quarter. Great. Yeah. It's not that you know, business as usual, right? Business as usual. So, so I don't want to talk about that. Okay, people can go and look at that. It's, it, it, you know, well done, it's fine. But what you have done, which is kind of exciting, is you've got this JV with uh, Apollo Infrastructure Fund. 
Why, why have you done that? Well, again, when I talked earlier about our plan to reinvest coal into renewables, that was the plan. And so in our minds, we felt we had around $100 million worth or so of future royalty revenue from coal to redeploy to build up that business. And things just move much quicker than we imagined. Um, by early summer this year, we'd signed our second big deal and the deal flow was really starting to come on. There was a real sense that the sector was adopting the, the product very quickly. And we also knew that, uh, we knew at that point that the opportunity was far, far bigger than simply just creating a replacement for our coal business. Um, but we also recognized that we had capital constraints within our business. So that was the point where we said, we need some real deep pockets and a real key strategic and like-minded partner to potentially take this business you know, to the next level. Like I, I don't actually, this is going to sound strange perhaps, but I actually believe that that business from a total deployment and scaling point of view has the potential to fully eclipse the whole mining royalty business in the, in the fullness of time. Now, whether or not we keep it as it's structured today for that to happen, but it's really just a statement about consider the total amount of capital that is going to be deployed in the build out of renewable energy facilities over the next decade relative to how much capital is going to be deployed in the entire mining sector. And it's orders of magnitude different, right? So we, we really hit upon something here, but we were never going to be able to fully capture it, you know, following the strategy we had been following, which was redeployment of, of cash flows. The opportunity was was much bigger than that. And we started a search and Apollo emerged as our preferred partner on a number of fronts. But most importantly, uh, we saw in, in the team there in the infrastructure group, more like-mindedness about the way that financing of the renewables energy space was going to evolve and evolve quickly. They were the ones who got it the most. The other potential groups that we spoke with, I, I think we're going to try to make our product look too much like everything else that was out there today. And we were going to revert to the mean and that's awfully boring thing to think about. So with Apollo, we just saw a lot of like-mindedness and um, they just saw the opportunity the same way that we did. And to be honest, you know, the terms of that joint venture were, you know, they were attractive. It, it generated a pretty significant lift on, on what we deployed already in a very short order. I mean, we've made our, the larger of our two investments only in March or April, and they came in and implied roughly a 20% lift on our value. However, uh, that was, you know, we, we turned down much bigger offers. I mean, we could, if, if we were focused on monetizing, uh, that's not who we would have went with, and we could have taken in a bigger number. But as far as the go for, we're not monetizing here. We want to be part of this business going forward. And I'm confident that with Apollo, we have found the right partner to really maximize this opportunity for shareholders. It's going to be tough to keep up with them at some point, won't it? Because I know you put in, what, 66? They put in 80, plus they've, they're talking about another 200, which you need to match, 50-50 JV. You're going to have to work out ways to kind of keep up. Or are you going to be able to charge for your expertise and knowledge of the space? Because these are financiers, right? Uh, yeah, no. I mean, there's a mismatch here in terms of, uh, you know, ability to just simply write a check for an unlimited number of deals. And it, that's exactly where we're to with this business. For the entire summer, which was a very challenging summer, obviously the Forge hold partnerships and relationships. Uh, we worked on this strategic, first step strategic uh, partner hunt. That's just concluded. And we barely got, you know, two or three days to breathe, uh, knowing that we had a little bit of a holiday from funding while they caught up. Uh, but already, you know, we look at the pace of deal flow that's coming into that business. There's no time to waste. We have to figure out how uh, we're going to keep up with our share of that uh, funding going forward if we really want to capture the opportunity. So, again, that's exactly where we're to right now as a management, as a board, thinking about how uh, we're going to do that best. I, it's not going to happen from, uh, you know, allocation of cash flows from our existing business that won't meet the opportunity in my opinion. So it comes down to what other ways can we fund this business to um, at least minimize 
dilutive impacts to current Altia shareholders, right? That's what, what matters here. So options that are on the table include everything from taking on additional private strategic investors um, to even taking uh, the subsidiary Altius Renewable Royalties public and having it become a pure play, first ever royalty level um, way to get involved with the renewable energy sector. And all these things are on the table. You won't have to wait long to find it out because we don't have time. We don't have a long time to uh, to figure it out. So these are near term decisions. Okay. Okay. So let, let's finish off with share price again. It's been flat for three years. We're going with right. That's how we're describing it. Mm-hmm. What would you say to current shareholders? What would you say to people looking at you in terms of where the growth is coming from and when is it coming? Well, first off, to Existing shareholder, I accept that this has been a longish call for patience, right? There's been buying and building and fixing up some, patching up a few holes along the way for the last few years. Um, but in the bigger picture, in terms of where we're to cyclically, when I look at how we're positioned, um, fundamentally and in terms of where capital wants to be in the world right now. You know, we're fully exposed to uh, the electrification thematic here through copper, nickel, cobalt, lithium, uh, obviously renewable energy quite directly, uh, sustainability in food production through potash natural fertilizers on the very best potash mines on earth, by the way, and even in iron ore, which you maybe wouldn't naturally associate with sustainability thematics, You've got to look at the particular part of the iron ore complex that we're exposed to, which is the ultra high purity forms of iron ore, which are, which when you make steel with them have a much lower emissions footprint, like their relative importance in the broader steel making complex is only going in one direction. So, you know, for all of those reasons, I believe that the market is coming very quickly our way and we're not going anywhere. So, you know, it's- Great. Okay, Brian, like, I appreciate the run through. Uh, nice to hear your story. Uh, first time we've obviously heard it. Um, you've got a lot of moving parts there, but seem to know what you want to do. You, you feel like you're in control. So, uh, appreciate your time today. Do stay in touch. Let us know of uh, anything uh, happening down the line, especially if you make a decision around uh, what you're doing with Apollo. That'd be fantastic. I look forward to hearing from you. Excellent. Look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.